The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. We finish up our look at verses 11 through 32. This morning, this very famous, well-known parable that Jesus taught, calling it the parable of the lost boys, better known as the parable of the prodigal son. I don't know about you, but these last three weeks of looking at this have been a joy for me. It's been fun to study this, this story that Jesus tells, to look at the different characters, and to see the message that he's trying to communicate to us all. We've seen some remarkable things very, very vividly in these weeks. At the very beginning, we looked at the story of a, of a young man who, who demands his inheritance from his father before he dies. And he leaves the family, snubs his nose at his family, spits in his father's face, essentially. And runs away off into a life of, of squandering everything that he had been given. Everything that his father had worked hard to accumulate for him, he blows it on sinful living and finds himself dealing with the rude awakening that comes with chasing sin. And we saw in this boy and his action the nature of sin. We saw what sin looks like and we saw where sin takes us and we saw the kind of fruit that's born out of a life that pursues sin. But the second week we looked with great joy that that wasn't where the story ended for this kid, was it? He, he, he got to the end of his rope, really found himself in a pig pen, and he'd lost everything. He was at rock bottom, and we're told in the story that he came to himself, that he woke up, that his eyes were opened, and he realized what a fool he had been. And he got up out of that pig pen, and he wiped himself off, and he headed on the road back to his father. And we saw in his turning and in his movement and his return to the Father what repentance looks like. That even those who have sinned and gone really far down the road of rebellion can pick themselves up, come to their senses, and return to the Father. And then last week we saw in the Father's response to the return of his Son the nature of grace. The Son who comes home thinking, at best, my, my highest hope is that my dad will let me be one of the servants that work his fields. And at least there I won't starve to death. Maybe, just maybe, that's a possibility. But he severely underestimated the nature and the character of his father. He had no idea that the whole time he had been gone, his father had been looking down the road, anxiously waiting and longing to see him come home already positioned to receive him and restore him and forgive him. And we saw the nature of grace in that father's response. Before his son could even really give a full apology, before he can even lay out his planned speech, the father wraps his arms around him in a bear hug and just drapes himself over the son. And he begins to call to the servants, bring him the best robe, bring out my signet ring, go kill the fatted calf, we're going to have a party in this place. 
My son who was dead is alive. The son who was lost has been found. And we saw in that father's response a shocking sort of grace, a grace that, 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 that absorbs in itself the penalty for the other person's sin and in, in response just pours out undeserved, unearned grace on somebody who doesn't deserve it, who hasn't earned it, and who isn't expecting it. And it was meant to show us how, how Jesus responds to people like you and me when we run away and when we rebel. And when we deal with all the consequences for our rebellion, what happens when we pick ourselves up, no matter how far we've gone, and we return to him, he does not scold us. He does not give us a list of things to do to get back in his good graces. He doesn't, he doesn't sit there and give us a whole list of I told you so's and make us feel shameful and guilty for what we've done. He, he welcomes us with open arms of grace. And he celebrates that his lost child has come home. That is the response every time of our Savior to his lost sheep who return. We saw what sin looks like. We saw what repentance looks like. We've seen what grace looks like. But Jesus has one more lesson to teach in the story. He has one more point that he needs to drive home. And you can decide for yourself if it's the main point or not. Perhaps it is. He wants us to take a good, long, hard look at what counterfeit faith looks like. Or we could call it spiritual hypocrisy. Or we could call it fraudulent faith. Now that we've seen sin, and we've seen what legitimate repentance looks like, and we've seen what grace looks like, we need to see this before we leave the story. There was a segment of Jesus' audience, namely the scribes and the Pharisees, to whom this part of the story is aimed. Now that I've made the announcement this morning, you're all coming to the Super Bowl party tonight. And you're going to see in the game, two brothers, they get to play against each other in the Super Bowl. What a cool thing, right? Travis Kelsey and Jason Kelsey. Travis is a tight end for the Chiefs, and Jason is the center for the Eagles. And there's been some stories in the media, I don't know if you've paid attention to it leading up to it, of, of how unique it is for brothers to be able to meet in the Super Bowl and play against each other. I'm sure for both of them, it's a bittersweet thing, isn't it, right? Like, somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. But if you read any of the stories, you find that these brothers are close and they love each other and they are looking with excitement to be able to share this experience together, even though they know one will walk away joyful and one will walk away sad. But they're clearly two brothers that are on the same page. The two brothers we encounter in Luke chapter 15 I have a very different relationship than the Kelsey brothers. A very different relationship. In some ways they are different, and in some ways they're the same. They're different in a couple of senses. One is outwardly rebellious. The other one is outwardly compliant. One of them takes his money and his inheritance, and he leaves and he squanders it. The other one stays home and dutifully works his father's business. One of them on the outside looks like an upstanding, godly young man. The other one is obviously a rebel. These, these, these brothers are very different. 
And yet in some ways they're both alike. They both are in need of grace. The difference is one of them recognizes that and the other does not. If the New Testament is clear about anything, it's clear about the fact that salvation comes to men and women by grace alone. That there is no other way to be saved other than by the grace of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 make it abundantly clear when Paul writes, For you, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How does salvation come? It comes by grace, through faith, and it has nothing to do with works. If it had something to do with works, people could boast about it and take responsibility for their own salvation. But it doesn't have anything to do with works. It is solely by grace. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, Paul writes there to the Romans, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many people have sinned? All of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he writes to the believers at this church, and are justified by his grace as what? As a gift. As a gift. Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Everybody sinned, and everybody in various ways has fallen short of the glory of God. And those who are saved are saved because they're justified by his grace as a gift. A gift is, by definition, not something that we work for. It's not a wage. It's not something that we've earned. It's something that someone gives us because they are gracious and want to give it, not because we deserve it. And as we saw last week, this, this word grace is simply a word that... that tells us about unmerited favor. It's favor that's poured out on somebody who doesn't deserve it, who has not earned it. It's favor that's poured out on somebody simply because the giver is gracious, not because the recipient has done anything to deserve it. It is on those terms and on those terms alone that men and women are saved. Nobody goes to heaven on any other terms than by grace. This, in fact, is really what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. Nearly every religion that you could think of right now or look up on the internet is based in some way, shape, or form on merit and performance. It's some sort of a system that says, here's the problem, and here's your problem, and if you want to fix it, here's the list of things that you need to do in order to make whatever's wrong right. And every faith and every religion and every cult has its own list of things to do or not do. And if you do enough of the good things and you avoid enough of the bad things, then you'll earn whatever it is that is available to be given. All merit-based, all performance-based. And Christianity stands at the pinnacle of all of that and says it has absolutely nothing to do with any of that. If you want to have eternal life, if you want to spend eternity with God, there's only one way to do it. That is to come before the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing your sin, admitting that you are a sinner, turning in repentance from that sin, and throwing yourself wholly upon his grace. 
saying, Lord Jesus, I don't deserve anything that you give me. I could never earn my way into your kingdom. My only hope is that you would be gracious to me and give to me as a gift what I do not deserve and what I have not earned. Christianity is built on grace. You simply cannot understand Christianity apart from an understanding of grace. You can't. And anything that undercuts that grace undercuts Christianity. And yet, even within the Christian world, ancient and modern, there's a grave danger of abandoning grace and a remarkable temptation to abandon grace. To live as though somehow our salvation and all of God's blessings are based on our performance. To, to live as though somehow if we're moral enough and religious enough and we do more good than we do bad, then God's going to be okay with us and he's going to reward us accordingly. There is a real temptation as we engage other people to judge other people and to make evaluations on other people based on our perception of their religious performance or their outward morality. The New Testament contains some very stark warnings about this. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21, is one of Jesus' most stunning warnings about this. Talking about the end judgment, he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are going to be people at the end who stand before the judgment who are in danger and have no idea they're in danger because they've deluded themselves into thinking that everything is just fine. And to justify that, they're going to lay out their spiritual resume. Look at all these things I've done, Jesus, for you. Surely it's enough to get me in the doors, only to hear. I don't know you away from me. It's a terrifying warning, in fact. It is, in fact, the same warning that Jesus is delivering at the end of Luke 15, at the end of this parable of the two lost boys. And it is a, a message that could not be more relevant to people like you and me. I'm sure at some point you can identify with the lost son that we've already looked at in the beginning, right? You probably can identify in your life some points of contact with that young man, some, some points in your life where you ran from your father and rebelled and did what you knew was wrong. And I think it's easier for us to draw some parallels of our life to that. Maybe even you can see a little bit of yourself and the father because you, there have been times when you've been sinned against and you've had to respond to that and be gracious. But I want to suggest to you, for Christians in our culture today, there is nobody more relevant to our lives than this other brother we look at today. Make no mistake about it. This message today is a message for church people. It's a message for people who are active in their local church. 
It's a message for people who stay up late at night and read their Bibles. It's a message for those who have devotionals with their children and teach them the Bible. It's a message for people who outwardly are very moral and very religious, who keep the rules and do the right things. That means it's a message for us. And the message is a warning. And it's one that's very difficult for us to take, and it's one very easy for us to write off. It's one that's very easy for us to think about somebody else who really needs to hear this sermon. But there's so much at stake. I hope you'll see it. Let's go into the the text and see what we're looking at. We're looking at this older son. What's happened, if you haven't been with us, I've already sort of summarized it. This rebellious kid is left. He's come back home. His father has received him. And not only has he received him, but he's restored him. And he's throwing a party in his honor. And Jesus could have ended the story right there. But he doesn't end the story right there. The other parables that precede this one end there. There's a lost sheep that's found in a celebration. End of story. There's a lost coin that's found, end of story, celebration. But here, in the third parable, there's a lost son who's found, and there's a celebration, but it's not the end of the story. That leads us to believe Jesus has built up to this. We're introduced here to a third character in the story that we really haven't heard much about so far in this parable. What we're going to find is that he stands in very stark contrast to his younger brother and also to his gracious father. He's not incidental to the story. In fact, he may be the whole point. And he's clearly meant here to represent the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He is clearly meant to be their parallel, to be emblematic in the parable of them. As we're going to see as we walk through it, he never leaves home but he's just as lost as his younger brother. He is not a man who is what it looks like he is on the outside. He's got everyone fooled, including himself. And we're introduced to him in verse 27, where Jesus simply tells us this. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, And he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now, the older son was mentioned at the beginning simply when Jesus says that there's this man who has two sons. And then we're not told anything else about him until we get down to verse 25, and now he comes back on the scene. It's only now that we begin to find out anything about him. He's been absent for all the excitement that's taken place in his home and in his village this day. He's been out. He hasn't been around for any of this. Only now does he show up on the scene, and we're told here the reason why he's missed it all. The reason is that he's been out in the field. He's been out in the field. He is now the firstborn son of a very wealthy farmer, so don't get the impression that he's out there digging around in the dirt with his hands. That's not what's happening here with this particular son. He is out in the field, but what he's doing is he's managing 
the work. He's managing the workers who are working the field. He's seeing to his father's business, if you will. He's managing his father's affair. And it seems that this was his habit. This was what he does. While his, while his uh, younger brother is off gallivanting with the Gentiles, he's at home and he's managing his father's business. He's getting up every day. He's putting on his work clothes and he's going to work and he's doing what every faithful son ought to do, what every faithful son was expected to do. You'll recall that his father has already divided up the inheritance, right? Three parts. One third was given to the younger brother who's blown it all away. What, everything that remains is the two-thirds that is his inheritance. While his father's still alive, he retains control of the estate. So at one and the same time, this, this, this older brother is dutifully serving his father, but in a real sense, he's also managing his own inheritance, isn't he? Because it's all coming to him in the end. That's what he's doing. But very quickly as this story unfolds, we see that he's not very different from his other brother. He doesn't truly love his father. He too is just as eager to get his inheritance as his younger brother was. He's just going about it in a different way. He's going about it in a more covert sort of a way. He's going about it in a more socially acceptable sort of a way. On his way home from the field, he begins to hear something off in the distance that is surprising to him. It's unusual. We're told what he hears is what? You remember? It's music and dancing. Music and dancing. Now we know, because we already know the story, what's going on, but he doesn't know what's going on. This is the party that his father has thrown and invited the whole village on behalf of his younger son, who was lost and is now found. This is the party that his father was throwing. It was an unplanned party. It was an unexpected party. It was a spontaneous party. So when this brother got up in the morning and he put on his work clothes and he went out into the field, there was no party on the calendar, right? There was no party. He looked at the family schedule. You got one of those in your house on the refrigerator somewhere? There was no party listed on that particular day. So when he's coming home, he's shocked. He's surprised to hear the music and to hear the dancing. And he doesn't necessarily immediately know what's going on but as he approaches he perceives the festivities more and more and more the music and the dancing are getting louder and louder and it's becoming more clear to him the closer he gets the more he he's smelling that roasting cow right that beautiful beef that's broiling he's smelling it and the closer he gets the stronger the smell I'm sure the whole way home, he's running through his mind a whole list of possibilities. What could be going on? Why is there a party going on? Why don't I know about this party? What's happening? I think what he does when he arrives at the party indicates to me, at least, that when he, by the time he gets there, he's already guessed at what might be going on. Because when he gets close, he doesn't run up to the house and he doesn't run to his father to ask him, right? I mean, imagine yourself. You're coming home from a normal day at work, and you drive up in the driveway, and there is a party going on at the house. What are you going to do? Well, I mean, you're going to be confused if it wasn't on the family schedule, right? And nobody's told you about it. But certainly you're going to want to know what's happening. And in general, parties are a good thing or a bad thing. In general, roasted beef is a good thing or a bad thing. It's a good thing. Even the vegetarians in the room, I'm sure, can admit that. 
Music and dancing, it's a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. Usually parties and celebrations bring out the joy in people. And when there's a party and a celebration, you want to find out what's going on, what's to be celebrated, and you want to be able to join in and enjoy the food and the fellowship and the music and the dancing, even if you don't have rhythm like me. You can try. But not this guy. He doesn't do that. He isn't excited about the party. He isn't eager to join in in the celebration. He stops on the outskirts of the village, and he, and he, and he sort of corners a servant. That's what we're told. He, he corners a servant. He asks what's going on, and the language is really vivid. There's a joyful celebration going on, but he's not eager to join. So he starts questioning this young servant, and the verb tense indicates that he asks, and he keep on, keeps on asking him. So he corners his servant and he's just pelting him with question. What in the world is going on here? What is this all about? Why are all these people here? Why is the beef roasting? Why all the music and why all the dancing? How come nobody told me about any of this? He's clearly not at all excited about what's going on. One author said this, the lack of joy in his own heart has made him suspicious of joy elsewhere. Well, the servant answers, and he answers with sort of just the facts, sir, doesn't he? No doubt, the servant, a little bit afraid of the aggressive approach of the firstborn son in the family who's going to own the estate at some point, simply says to him, your brother's come home, the father's killed the fat, fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. So there's two noteworthy things in the response, right? Two things worth celebrating. The first, his brother is returned and he's safe and sound. That's worth celebrating and that's part of the reason for the party. The second thing that's noteworthy is his father has received him. And that word received simply means that he's restored him. He's offered him reconciliation. So there's two things that people are celebrating. The son who has gone away, has returned, and he's safe and sound. And the second thing is the father has graciously reconciled with him and restored him. And so people are celebrating these two things. And you know that that message landed on this guy's ears like burning acid. We see very quickly he hates his brother and he's disowned him long ago. He has no desire to ever see that loser again. He has no joy whatsoever in finding out that he's safe and sound, and he has no forgiveness ever to offer that guy. In fact, he's stunned at what he hears. Not only can he believe, not only can he not believe that that guy had the gall to show his face around town again, but he's stunned at how his father has responded to it all. And to add insult to injury to all of that... He's told that his dad killed the fatted calf. Dad is spending a fortune on this party. The special cow that was being saved and fattened up for a special occasion. He's butchered Bessie. And Bessie's cooking. That fortune that his father is spending on this party for his loser brother is his inheritance. That was his cow. That's his money that's funding this whole endeavor. You mean to tell me that loser came home? You mean to tell me my dad is celebrating that he came home? You mean to tell me he's burning up my inheritance to celebrate that? Oh, he is not a happy man. He's not a happy man. We're simply told in very few words 
Verse 28, he was angry and he refused to go in. That tells us all we need to know about this young man, doesn't it? He's enraged. The, the word there indicates explosive rage. He's not just a little, he's not just a little ticked. He is livid at what he sees and what's going on. He, in fact, is refusing to go in and participate in the celebration. He stays outside steaming and brooding and pouting. He can't believe what's happening. He can't believe his brother came back. He can't believe his father would welcome him back just like that. He can't believe that his father would just forgive him and immediately restore him. He cannot believe that his dad would throw a party for this apostate kid who has dishonored him and dishonored the family, embarrassed them all publicly, and wasted his inheritance. He cannot believe dad would do that. He does not believe his brother deserves this, and to him it's all a huge injustice. And he's not about to participate in this charade. And he feels completely justified in his non-participation. Now the contrast we're meant to see here is the contrast between the father's reaction to the return of the younger son and the brother's reaction to the news of the return of the younger son. And the contrast is very, very stark. And what we see immediately is though he has been outwardly compliant most of his life, and though by all outward appearances he has been a very faithful son to his father, what we see immediately here is that this man is nothing like his dad in the, way, in the ways that matter. He's nothing like his father. He couldn't be more unlike his father, in fact. And we see that in his response. The father is overjoyed that his son has come home. His lost son is now found. His dead son is alive. It's, it's worth rejoicing in that this has taken place. And this guy is livid. He'd rather him be dead. He would say, that's what he deserves. Well, his protest is noticed, and the word travels inside even though he does not. His father hears about it, and he responds in verse 28. We're told his father came out and entreated him. And now this is interesting because just as his father was looking down the road every day for the younger son, and when he saws him, when he saws him, when he saw him, what did he do? He doesn't saw him. Like he saw him, what does he do? He runs out to meet him, right? He, he takes initiative to go to him and to restore him. And it's the very same approach he takes with the older son. He hears that this is going on with his older son, that he's outside pouting, and he's outside steaming, and he's outside brooding, which also was an insult to him. But again, this is his nature. He goes out to meet him where he is. He goes out there just the same. Because his father loves both of his sons. He loves them both. And his love doesn't create a separation between him and them. His love draws him toward them. So he comes to him and he treats, entreats him. We don't use the word entreats a lot. It just is a word that means he, he pled with him. He was pleading with him. He was appealing to his heart. He was pleading with him to reevaluate his position on all of this, to rethink his reaction. He's trying to help him see the reasons for rejoicing. He's trying to help him understand grace and forgiveness and why that's warranted. He's pleading for him to come on in and enjoy the celebration. Get a plate, get a fork, get some of Bessie. She's delicious. Stop your pouting and join the party. 
And it's worth noting, just as Jesus loved tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, he also loved the scribes and the Pharisees. He loved them too. He deeply desired that like the tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, that the Pharisees and the scribes, that the religious leaders, that they would recognize that they too were sinners in need of grace. He desperately desired that they would repent and turn from their self-righteousness. He desperately desired that they would abandon their whole works-based pursuit of justification, that they would come on in and enjoy the party on the basis of grace. That's what he wanted. And even the telling of the story in their presence is evidence of that. Well, this son is having none of it, is he? None of it. He's not listening to any of this. He explodes on his father. <clears throat> and years of anger and resentment come flowing out of his mouth. And we get a very clear look at this guy's true character. We find out immediately that he's every bit as lost as his brother. While his brother's sins were out in the open, his sins were hidden. While his brother's sins drove him far away, this guy's sins kept him close. But at the end of the day, his sins were just as rotten as his brother's and just as damning. But he doesn't see any of it. He presents his argument in verse 29 and following, doesn't he? He answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Wow. What a thing to say to your dad. Right? Well, it tells us what we need to know about him, doesn't it? He doesn't love his father. If he truly loved his father, then what brought his father joy would bring him joy. But he doesn't love his father. And he doesn't care what brings his father joy. He has no relationship with him. It's clear. I've served you faithfully for years. You can just hear him laying this out, can't you? Like you can just hear him saying, this worthless kid, he publicly dishonored you. He took your money and left. He's been off partying it up and blowing all of your wealth and I've been here faithfully serving you for years I've never done anything like that year after year I get up and I put on my clothes and I go out into the fields and I take care of your business I've never rebelled I've never dishonored you I've never shamed our family and everybody knows it I've served you faithfully for years word translated serve here is a word that means to serve as a slave. I've been slaving away in your business for all these years. All these years I've been doing that. I'm the good kid. I never disobeyed you. Everything you've asked me to do, I've done. I obey you faithfully. Whatever you tell me to do, I do it. Whatever you forbid, I stay away from it. It's really a remarkable thing to say. And it's worth noting that self-righteous hypocrisy has a very blinding effect on the individual. This man's heart is wicked, and it's rebellious, and yet he's convinced himself that he's never disobeyed, that he's perfectly righteous and before his father. 
in spite of my record, in spite of what I've done for you year after year after year, slaving away in your household, in spite of all of that, this, this, this kid, that loser has, has done everything wrong, everything wrong. He's done it all wrong, and you throw a party. You killed the fatted calf. I obey you day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and you haven't so much as given me a little goat to go celebrate with my friends. And notice how he refers to his brother, the son of yours. Not my brother, because he's completely disowned him. The son of yours. All of you parents who have kids understand that kind of language, don't you? You know what happens when, what happens when your kid gets crayons and draws all over the wall or something? Whoever discovers it goes to the other spouse and said, you'll never believe what your son just did, right? My son would never draw all over the wall with a crayon, but your son, that's, his, that's your genes that are doing that. My son never drew on the wall with crayons, just, just saying, at least that I know about. The son of yours, your son, he shows up here after all that and you kill the fatted calf. Also notice who he wanted to celebrate with. You haven't so much as given me a goat to go celebrate with who? With my friends. So we see where his heart really is. It isn't with the father. If he had the opportunity to have been gifted an animal to kill and to broil, he's not interested in celebrating it with his father. He's not interested in celebrating with his family. He too wants to go off and celebrate with his friends. Isn't that the same impulse that drove the other brother away? The only problem is this son hasn't had the opportunity to execute that yet. Given the opportunity, he'd get away too. It all just seems so unjust, so unfair, so upside down. In his mind, his brother does not deserve any of this. What he deserves is to be tried and convicted and disowned. What he deserves, at the very best, is to have to work to repay all that he's squandered. In his mind, he does deserve all of this. He's earned it by being obedient, by being faithful. And this whole thing is upside down. My brother deserves none of this. If anybody deserves it, I do. And so the father is wrong in his eyes on two fronts. He's giving his brother what his brother doesn't deserve, and he's withholding from him what he does deserve, what he's earned. And here we see the root problem of it all. He does not relate to his father like a son. He relates to him like a slave. It's not the relationship of a loving father to a gracious, to a loving son. It, it, it's the relationship of a slave to a master, an employer, to an employee. He does the work and the father owes him the payment that's due. It's not a relationship built off of love and grace. It's a relationship built off of performance and merit. Not one day of his life has he served his father out of love. He served him out of obligation. John Piper writes this, it dishonors God to treat him as a master in need of a slave laborer. What honors God is not slave labor, but childlike faith in his all-sufficiency. Jesus did not come to hang out help-wanted signs. He came and hung out help-available signs. Jesus is eating with sinners because he's a doctor with a cure, not because he's an employer with a labor shortage. It's a great way of saying it. Let me ask you a question. You ever find yourself thinking that God owes you something? 
Have you ever find yourself having that, that conversation in your head that sounds a lot like what this boy says to his dad? You've been obedient. You've gone to church. You've read your Bible. You've avoided the big sins. You've, you're, you're in general a pretty good person. You've raised your kids the right way. You've led a Bible study. You serve in the church. You've given your tithes and offerings. You've helped other people when they were in need. The very least God could do is give you a payoff for all of that. The very least God could do and ought to do is keep cancer away. The very least he ought to do is make sure your kids turn out right. The very least he ought to do is give you that promotion at work and not that bum in the office next door. The very least he ought to do for all that you've done for him is to take away your fears and your anxieties. The very least he ought to do is give you all those things that you want. You ever have that conversation in your head when something doesn't go right? God, all the stuff I've done, you owe me better than this. His son is, is just as lost as his brother. He's completely lost. He's rejected his father's joy. He's refused forgiveness and reconciliation with his brother. He's harboring bitterness and he's harboring envy toward his brother. He's secretly covering up his own sinful desires. But most of all, he's rejected his sonship. Seeing himself as a slave who's owed wages rather than a son who's equally in need of grace. He's a hypocritical legalist. That's what he is. He's doing what's expected on the outside, but inside he's filled with secret sins. He sees himself as far superior to his younger brother. He sees himself deserving the rewards of his father, and he cannot stand that his sinful brother is getting what he deserved, what he earned. That's exactly who the Pharisees were, my friends. And that's exactly who the religious legalists are today. This hits pretty close to home if you think about it. This parable confronts religious people. It confronts church people. It confronts people who've grown up in Christian homes, who've done all the right things, who've spent years going to church, who've learned how to speak the language and how to play the game, and yet do not understand grace. And the church is filled with such people. It's a message for those who've been going to church a long time but have grown hard and merciless in their spirit. People who've become critical and condemning and separatistic. People who feel indignant far more than they feel compassion. People who simply cannot rejoice when they see others enjoying the blessings of grace especially ones they think they deserve. Is that you? Do you see any of that in your own heart? How do you respond when other people are rewarded in ways that you think you deserve? How do you respond when people who are far away get welcomed back in and nobody's celebrating you? Do you find joy in lost sinners coming home? Well, our time is beyond up. Jesus finishes the story by saying, the, son, the father says to the son, son, you're always with me. 
and all that is mine is yours. Son, what are you talking about? I've never given you a goat. It's all yours. I've already given it all to you. It all belongs to you. What's mine is yours. You're my son. I've opened the doors to the kingdom and given it all to you. I haven't withheld anything. Son, it's fitting. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad. Your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. Son, this is right. You haven't been slighted. This isn't even about you. It's about your, your brother who was dead but is now alive. And that's a reason to rejoice. Come on in, boy. Come on in, man. Join the party. Celebrate with me. And you want to know what happens? Do you? Well, you have to wait till you get to heaven. Because he doesn't tell us what happens. Does the younger brother, does the, does the older brother come in or does he not? Does he stomp away pouting and back into the field? What does he do? We don't know what he does. You know why we don't know what he does? Because Jesus didn't tell us what he did. Do you know why Jesus didn't tell us what he did? Because the story was yet to be written. The story was aimed at the scribes and the Pharisees. And there was still time. There was still time for them to enter the party or leave. There was still time for them to repent or harden their hearts even further. It was an open-ended story. It was like one of those, you know, did you have those stories that you had when you were a kid where you put in verbs and nouns and stuff and, you know, the story was still unwritten. Choose your own adventure. That's what I was thinking. They get to choose their own adventure. He loved those scribes and Pharisees and he wanted them to respond and he leaves the story open because forgiveness and grace was still open to them. All they had to do was repent. Well, it's a wonderful story. But it's not just a wonderful story. It's actually quite piercing to the soul. Both of those boys needed exactly the same thing. They both needed to own their sin. They both needed to turn from it and repent. And they both needed to run to their father and hope beyond hope that he would receive them on the basis of grace, not on merit. The one son did that. The other, at least at the end of the story, had not. And the question is, have you? Whether you're the younger brother who's living in open rebellion or you're the older brother who's living in secret rebellion, the answer is the same. Turn to Jesus Christ. Admit that you're a sinner and that your sin makes you worthy of death because the wages of sin is death. Abandon any effort at trying to earn his favor by your works or your merits. And ask him to forgive you on the basis of his grace alone. And if you do that, he will receive you on those terms every single time. He loves open rebels. And he also loves to see secret hypocrites repent and join the party. Why won't you do that today? Let's pray. Jesus, it's impossible for us to recreate the impact this story must have had. Everything about it is shocking. Everything about it turned the religious sensibilities of the crowd upside down and on its head. I'm sure for the tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners who heard it, it was a reason to rejoice. They had no problem recognizing that they couldn't earn salvation. They knew they were a long ways away and they had no shot. 
if it was based on performance. And they were quickly celebrating that it was possible that they could be received on the basis of grace. But for the scribes and the Pharisees, it was a harder sell. They didn't even see themselves as sinners. They saw themselves as deserving of the kingdom. And if we're not careful, Lord, we make that same mistake. That older brother, it's way too close to home in my own heart, and I suspect in the hearts of many that are in this room as well. Far too frequently, we're cold toward the lost. Very little excitement when lost sinners return, when the dead come to life. Very little joy when your grace is poured out on others and not on us. Very quick to assert what we think we deserve in comparison to what we perceive that we've got. How quickly we relate to you like a slave to a master, like an employee to an employer, rather father, daughter, father, son. Apart from your Holy Spirit opening our eyes to spiritual hypocrisy, Lord, we'll never ever see it. So we pray that in these moments that by your Spirit, where it's appropriate, you would remove the blinders and let us see that you would draw us into the party on the basis of grace. We pray it in Jesus' name.